You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation brought to you by Go Wild. Now, as we all know, Go Wild is one of the fastest growing and most popular social media apps specifically for outdoorsmen, hunting, fishing, and so forth and so on. But recently, they have announced a partnership with Garmin Connect IQ app. Now, what this does, this is like an integration between both platforms. The Go Wild community members will have the ability to track and share robust digital stories ranging from automated archery shot counts, miles hiked, you know, whatever you do throughout the hunt, like scout, put up your tree stand. And this is the cool thing, biometric data collecting. Now, what, what that is, is let's say it's your heart rate. And it will track your heart rate, everything from when you see the big buck, as the big buck gets closer and closer, your heart rate starts to go up, you draw back, you shoot the deer, and then the deer runs away, and the app records all that, and you're you're able to see what your heart rate is throughout this entire process, and I think that's really cool, uh, along with all the other benefits and features of Go Wild, like tracking and documenting your hunt. So go to the website, timetogowild.com, or you can download the Go Wild app wherever you download your apps. So get outside. It's time to go wild. Welcome to the For Love of the Land podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith and Matt Dye. Each week, we're interviewing guests from across America. They all have one thing in common. They all are tied to the land. So if you're like us and you love all things land, welcome home. All right, guys. Welcome to another For Love of the Land podcast. I'm your host, Adam Keith. Uh, Matt Dye is... I'm not even sure where Matt Dye is today. I know he (laughs) recorded a podcast and... uh, it was kind of one of those we had a couple of them on the on the uh, schedule, and it was like, you take that one, I'll take this one. Sounds good. So be uh, be prepared to hear more of that sort of thing um, in the coming spring months and late winter as we start consulting and traveling and splitting up. You'll see a lot of – you'll hear a lot of podcasts of uh, one of us hosting and the other one somewhere else. So it'll be a lot of kind of <laughs> divide and conquer from the Land and Legacy crew. But I am here today – with Land and Legacy client, Mr. Kevin Waring. Kevin, thanks for coming on. Oh, no problem. Glad to be here. Awesome. So tell me a little bit about where you're at in in the country. Okay. Well, um, so I am in the state of Maryland and affectionately in a place I call Southern Maryland, which is, you know, three to four counties on the western shore of the Chesapeake Bay. So um, if you think about the Washington, D.C., I'm about you know, 30, 45 miles southeast of there. Southeast of D.C., okay. Yep. Yep, so you're not far from, and that's why when I said Land and Legacy client, um, Matt's the one who actually worked on your property uh, not not too long ago, and it was because of your relation to his hometown and him traveling during the holidays. How far are you from Matt's hometown? About um, About another, almost the same distance, maybe about an hour Gotcha. From my house, I could be in his front door. Um, kind of a so, busy. Yeah, it was actually 
very ironic, right? When I the first time I talked to him on the phone, um, you know, he was telling me where he's from, and I'm like, really? And then turns out my parents have some land down where his family lives now, like you know, minutes from there. So it's oh wow, small world. Small yeah, world. and you're in a very busy part of the world when you compare it to a lot of places when you look at managing land and. Um, for a lot of our listeners who come from a hunting background or kind of an overall just land and recreational background, when you think 30 minutes from D.C., I don't think many people picture what you're fixing to describe with the makeup of what your (laughs) farm looks like. What is it it like where you're at? Yeah, so it's interesting, right? So um, when you get down to what, again, southern Maryland, you start to enter an area that – historically, I know you guys are big history buffs, you know, oh, has, for sure. has been a, you know, agricultural focused community. Um, mm-hmm. And for the long, long time, it was uh, tobacco. So tobacco was the cash crop in the area. And in addition to that, um, many people in the area are, you know, harvest crabs, fish, oysters from the bay. So it's kind of a crabbing, fishing, farming community that was pretty tight knit for, you know, probably hundreds of years. And, you know, over the time, you know, more and more communities have been built and such, but there's still a large uh, kind of, I'll call it residency of kind of the folks who've been here for quite some time. Oh, for sure. Very interesting. Um, What do you think, I don't know, what do you think the landscape was um, pre kind of settlement? Do you have any, do you have any knowledge on like, when did your family kind of move into that area? Yeah, so it's that's an interesting story. So my um, my family on my dad's side um, was from Washington D.C. You know, they weren't farmers at all, and they had a business downtown. And then my grandfather decided to he wanted to raise his family out in more of a rural setting, so he moved us moved them out to this area. Um, my mom she has more roots in this area, right? Going back a couple different generations. Gotcha. And um, what's, I guess the interesting part is that I think of my dad as like the black swan, right? So everyone else <laughs> kind of worked, worked uptown and did the thing. And he said, you know, I'm going to go off and be a farmer and a waterman and, um, you know, has had a lot of drive and passion for it. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Now but... to your question, as far as the landscape, you know, yeah. I think it's, you know, when we think about Maryland, one of the first cities of Maryland, like is St. Mary's city, which is kind of one of the first areas that was settled Mm -hmm. in Maryland. And that's only maybe 50 miles from here. Yeah. And so, I mean, I imagine that there was much like in Virginia and other places, um, you know, a lot of the deforestation and kind of build ships and fuel the, the engine that was the local, you know, well, all the way up to Baltimore and D.C. And actually, there's a fair amount of history close by here about a place called Port Tobacco. Um, Port Tobacco was like a major hub for, you know, spices and tobacco, of course, and then other things. So it's yeah. kind of how all that was. We were kind of like a central point being close to the Potomac River. I, I guess mm-hmm. I failed to mention that, but the Potomac River was kind of a major hub coming up from the bay into dc and so then our area here being you know a stop on the way was kind of a a major port ah cool 
Cool. So tobacco being one of the biggest crops in that area for years and years right. and years. Right. Is it currently, where's the closest, do you still have a lot of tobacco fields? Um, so there's a, an Amish community that still does a decent amount of it. Yeah. But what's Maryland, it was an interesting story too, that oh, I guess it was maybe probably 15 years ago now. Yeah. Uh, there was a lawsuit against, you know, your big tobacco companies like Philip Morris for the state of Maryland. And uh, many of the farmers took what was called the tobacco buyout. So this is a situation where Maryland said, if you stop raising tobacco, we'll pay you X, you know, cents on the pound that you used to pounds you used to raise. And, you know, we're going to pay you for 10 years and then that runs out. So, hmm. you know, Maryland farming in the Southern Maryland area has been going through a transition the last 20 years from, you know, traditionally tobacco to more, you know, small fruits and vegetables to, you know, grain production, yeah. um, orchards, you know, wineries, breweries. I mean, there's kind of been a revitalization of all of it broken up into smaller farms probably yeah yeah Yeah, a lot of hobby farms yep and maryland the landscape of maryland is pretty interesting in that way at least in this region i think as you get more northwest some of the land gets a little bit bigger but um here you know the the average farm size i would say is maybe like 150 acres or less um and so your big grain farmers here tend to lease a lot of those farms. But what's interesting about it from a habitat perspective is that it's a very much a patchwork, right? A lot oh, of yeah. hedgerows everywhere, a lot of, um, you know, just browse, you know, constantly connecting, you know, large tracts of timber. Gotcha. Huh. Is it, I'm just trying to picture this, and now I'm going back in the time frame. I remember where there was, there was a time – where the Chesapeake Bay had a huge concern because of the algae bloom. When did, and, and there was kind of this huge transition of improving water quality and less runoff. Um, am I correct with that statement? Yeah, no. Um, I would say Maryland's pretty out, you know, on the cutting edge of, you know, from, a, from the farming community is concerned to, uh, to try to protect the bay. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I'm trying to remember, um, pretty active in farm bureau so i'm remembering hearing some stats here and there and i think i think maryland has somewhere upwards of about two million acres of farmland and um you know it's our number one industry which might be surprising to hear that you know farming is maryland's number one industry yeah that's really interesting and the watershed size for the chesapeake bay i think it's upwards of like sixty thousand square miles so all the way up to you know, stretches of New York down to like Lynchburg, Virginia. And, you know, you have various rivers and um, that connect all that. So it's, you know, a massive watershed to try to, you know, protect, if you will. And so Maryland has has taken a pretty big step being that, you know, we live right on the bay and farmers especially have really stepped up to, you know, there's, best management practices we could talk about, but even just things like the cover crop program where we, we plant, you know, wheat essentially winter wheat every year and that to reduce runoff. So things like that. Gotcha. Yeah, that, for sure. And I think that's kind of a direction we'll get to in this podcast. Cause I know you have an interesting story of, of what you guys did on your farm. Um, tobacco is pretty tough on the soil. If I remember correctly, if you were to ask me Southern Missouri boy, 
born and raised, <laughs> and you'd say, where's the nearest tobacco farm? Right. I'd, I'd probably point towards Kentucky um, <laughs> because, yeah, I think as far as I'm looking back at all the travels we do, I think that would probably say somewhere over in Kentucky would be my best bet at saying that's the closest tobacco farm. So uh, I just always remember in all the travels we make of people talking about tobacco being pretty pretty tough on the soil and, and um, more susceptible for erosion. So it kind of makes yep. sense when you start telling me that cover cropping and water uh, water quality trying to be improved and, and getting out of the tobacco farming. Um, your family farm or you, your farm that you're on now, that you're is this the same farm that your dad – moved and and purchased this farm is that the same farm that you're at today no okay um so essentially like i said my dad was the uh the black swan left went out got a partner who's my uncle they bought a a property together with my you know my mom and my aunt and became tobacco farmers right and that was cruising along and you know they took out loans everything that you might expect (laughs) yeah when it comes to buying land Yep. And, you know, there was a few years where locally here there were some severe droughts. And um, while they necessarily didn't – they weren't too bad at risk for foreclosing, you know, some of the people they knew had foreclosed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the right person came along and said, hey, I'll buy your property for X price. And then so they decided to sell the property. Gotcha. Now, interestingly, they decided to essentially lease it right back from the owner – because they had kind of long-term investment plans that they, you know, one day they wanted to turn it into a neighborhood sort of thing. And essentially that farm has never been developed and my parents have leased it since then, since back in the nineties. Wow. Um, Now, you know, with the drawdown of tobacco and all the things like that, my dad had said, Hey, there's no future in farming here. You know, you really need to go off to college and and study something else. And so I went off and got a degree in physics um, (laughs) of all things. Yeah. Of all things. Yeah. A long ways from picking tobacco. It's right. And so I, one of my first jobs was uptown. And so I moved up to an urban area and kind of the central area of Maryland called Rockville, Maryland. And what was interesting, and this kind of connects back to your question is I lived there for about three years with some good friends of mine. And it starts to sink in, right? I'm out of college. I'm working full time. It starts to sink in like, you know, I think I really want to move back home and I want to, I want to own land. You know, I mean, we briefly talked uh, pre-podcast, right, about a story that, you know, our parents have always told us that, oh, yeah, I used to be able to buy that farm for $500 an acre. And, you know, in the, you know, mid 2000s when I was out of college in this time frame, right? If you recall, you know, prices of land were going up and up and up and up. And so, oh, yeah. so for me, it was kind of, I had this gut feeling that man now or never. And so I, you know, had lots of long talks with my parents and, you know, my girlfriend at the time, <laughs> um, now wife. And, you know, we started our journey towards finding land and, you know, it turns out land's pretty expensive, right? <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. For and, sure. Um, so we, Searched around. It took about two years to find the place that we live at now, and it's 60 acres. And one of the key things, and it actually links back into your other, our other discussion about the bay, is that we, in order to be really be able to afford the farm, we 
put we sold our development rights, right, which is a, a land preservation program that is run in Maryland. And so that all sort of transpired in the 2009-10 timeframe, and we built a house in 2013, and you know here we are doing land consultations with Land and Legacy, right? There, so, there you go. You know, only up from here, right? Explain to me the um, land development um, rights being sold. Right. So Maryland has a range of programs. Um, they have some, like there's one that's called Rural Legacy that targets you know, the most ecologically sensitive areas. Um, and, you know, you have to be in those designated areas. Unfortunately, this land was not. Yeah. So, but there's another program called the Maryland Ag Land Preservation Foundation. And it, I think it started back in the mid seventies. Um, and essentially what they, the, the aim of that program with agriculture being the name is that they're trying to preserve key farmland, right? So, yeah. farmland with good soils. And so what we were able to do ahead of purchasing the property, you know, we went and looked at the score sheet essentially and said, okay, well, how do we score well to maybe get into this program? And we found out that, okay, it's, you got to have good soils and you need to be maybe close to some urban areas. And it helps if you're next to other preserved areas, right? Cause they're interested in continuous preservation. Yeah. Um, and essentially we're able to find this piece of land that scored well. We kind of rolled the dice and it all worked out. Now, when it came time to um, selling the easement, essentially what you're giving up is the ability to turn your farmland into a development. Mm -hmm. But in addition to that, you kind of have, there's some red tape, right? That says, Hey, for example, right. You can't put billboards on your farm to, uh, you know, with, uh, Verizon commercials on it, or you can't go in and do a large mining operation, or you can't, you know, totally deforest your area or anything that would like significantly degrade more of like the natural state and the agricultural value. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Now, good news is they also allow you to have what we, they would call like a uh, owner's lot and a child's lot. So there's, you know, there is some opportunity for the family itself that sells the easement to then still be able to build on the farm. Does that mm -hmm. make sense? Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's very interesting. You guys. So a lot of our listeners are aware Matt and I both do real estate yep. and uh, we were working on a transaction uh, six months ago that was basically the nature conservancy owned the property it was in yep. one of these key areas. It was close to the current river in southern Missouri, and they owned the property. I'm not sure if they bought it or gained it through um, a donation, but somehow they owned the property, and mm -hmm. uh, I, I believe they bought it. Um, there was logging that happened pr uh, before they bought it, but once they bought it, they entered it into a conservation easement, and that easement basically had guidelines to say um, it's it's already kind of in a woodland setting. This is the native landscape. Um, you can do any natural management of that, but you can't mm -hmm. you can't turn it into crop fields. You can't turn it into like an ATV part to where um, erosion would be a factor in because it was in one of the um, scenic rivers. The current river qualifies or it's in the it's a scenic river and so basically any type of 
uh, erosion around that farm is part of the watershed, so it could damage the the water quality downstream. And so basically, you couldn't do anything minus you could put in some food plots for the deer hunters or you could put in pollinators. You could do anything to improve the land, but you couldn't do anything that would qualify as um, kind of degrading it in a fact of mm-hmm. making it crop ground. Uh, and there was like a 5% building permit to where you could you could build a house on it and a couple shops probably, but you couldn't do anything outside of that and put in a bunch of condos. So very interesting that um, – and I, and I think that's something um, for, for, that you could speak on about how that qualified you for uh, purchasing the farm. I think there's a lot of people out there like, man, I, I'm looking for ways. I want to own land, um, but I just can't figure out how to make it worth it without going without right. the bank coming to take it back. Um, right. And um, one of the, I would say one of the key things to kind of getting down that path, right? So Maryland had these specific programs, but like you were mentioning, there's also, you know, conservancies that have, that will hold an easement. Now, yep. some of those easements are not the type of program I'm describing, but they're more a, essentially they just hold the land via paperwork and then the the kickback you get from there is like on a tax benefit side whereas like some of these maryland programs it's a upfront payout does that make sense oh yeah yeah what i was going to say is that you know a key step to kind of getting down this path is reaching out to your kind of a range of community not just the farming community but the kind of the conservationists in your area um there's like your NRCS office or any of these folks that can kind of, you know, if you walk in those doors and say, Hey, you know, I don't own any land, but I know you guys are the people who are really smart about this stuff. You'd be imagine what you can step upon. And then particularly also, if you're a young farmer, there's additional perks to try to stimulate young farmers because of, you know, we know the average age of farmers these days is, is really old. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I think we just talked to one of our podcast listeners a few weeks ago that, um, they were trying to get financing for one of their farms, and we kind of sent them in the direction of USDA first-time farmer loans, and uh, yeah. they, they qualified. They're moving forward on it now, and it's like there are some great benefits because we're trying to encourage younger generation to get back into farming. You so, got it. That's right, yeah. So uh, what what steps did you take to f- to be aware of the uh, the easements or the, the, the ability for you to get the, the basically to purchase the farm? Well, I think partially because, you know, I'm still connected to the, the local farming community. There was a few other people that had done it that we were sort of aware of, but, you know, I didn't know how realistic it was. And then we have a, a good county administrator here. His name's Charles Rice. And, you know, sat down with him, a few meetings with him, and then he kind of laid out, hey, here's your, your range of options. And then that gave us sort of the knowledge to then kind of move forward with our real estate adventures. Gotcha. So at what point, when did you buy the farm? It was 2009. That's right. That's right. Um, I'm terrible with numbers, by the way. So that I'll ask questions and double back a lot, probably. <laughs> 2009, did you have any kids at the time? No, it was just, so me and my parents bought it together. Um, you know, they went in half, I went in half. And then, okay. you know, later married, essentially two years later. And then my wife and I live here now. And we've kind of carved off the lot for my sister as well. So that's gotcha. like the long-term plan is that we set up homestead here. That's right. So what are you? What's the current use of the property? 
Yeah, so now we have about um, 100 tillable acres on the original piece. And actually, recently, and this part of why I uh, you know, called Matt out here for the consultation is that we were, you know, my neighbor had decided to sell some land. And so I, we recently acquired 80 more acres adjacent to our farm. And gotcha. so, you know, in total now, I think we're upwards, a little over 100 acres of tillable land. And then... You know what it was at, and then maybe almost 100 acres of woods. Gotcha. So, so I think we're like 240 acres total, but you know, in that ballpark of tillable land and, and woods. Okay. And so we rotate everything from, you know, soybeans, corn. We've done um, sorghum here as well. Okay. So you know, we've had a, a, a diverse set of commodity crops. Yeah. And you know, we we tried our hand in in vegetables for a little while, but you know, I'm doing my master's right now and that those two things don't go hand in hand. There's too much day labor. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. I imagine that you're part of the world. Like, are there many farmers markets and people interested in the organic type of yeah, vegetables? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I figured there yeah, would there's... be, you know, so... here in, here in Springfield, Missouri, we've got one of the fastest growing farmers markets. Um, just because it's kind of, I mean, the coasts always do it before the, the Midwest, but, um, Midwest is starting to do it. So it's like, well, I know the, the East coast and West coast have been yeah. doing it for a while. So, uh, and I imagine that's probably what you see a lot in your area when you're talking about hobby farms. I'm sure there's mm-hmm. people doing the, the vegetable gardens and, mm-hmm. and flowers, you know, oh. it's, it's a things. Cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So you guys are doing the, the crops. You guys don't plant the crops. Do you, do you lease out the crop rights? Well, no. So we have a essentially. I, you may know the term better than I do. I think it's really where it's on like shares. It's not yeah. a lease. Yeah. So, you know, Dad and I, you know, we have <clears throat> tractors and, you know, some of the, your equipment that's not a combine, right? But that's you know, right. for me, it's hard to justify going out and buying a combine. I mean, I could always lease a combine, but you know, we have just two farms over you know, long family friends and, you know, they have a larger grain operation. And so we partner with them essentially. Oh, cool. Interesting. But Very it cool. allows me to get out and, you know, turbo till wheat and plant wheat and stuff. And, you know, I'll get to drive to combine for a little bit, you know, hanging out, but um, it's really nice to have their oversight and kind of advice. Oh, I'm, but, I can only imagine, you know, I've yeah. always wanted to um, get more into the cattle farming um, for mm-hmm. me, family farm always had cows and you've heard the story I've shared on our other podcast a lot where I hated cows at a time in my life and I'm w- circling back and I'm like, man, I want more cows than what dad already has, but I just want to change the way we manage them. And, yeah. uh, it's, it's nice. I've, I worked for a farmer, um, that's kind of, he's a mentor of mine when it comes to the, uh, intensive grazing, rotational grazing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he's, it's nice to have the advice of an experienced farmer. Um, <laughs> because there's so many things that can go wrong in the world of ag if you don't, yeah. if you go into it, not knowing what to do. So I, you'll, you'll appreciate this. I had a, um, a wise farmer. I won't call him old farmer. Uh, a wise farmer once tell me that, you know, what's tough about farming is that you really only get like 30 tries, right? Yep. And every every time is a little bit different. The weather changes, right? So, um, yeah, it's definitely nice to 
like you said, to have someone who's at least had 20 tries or, you know, how many ever tries they've had. <laughs> uh-huh, for sure. Somebody to shadow. Okay. Well, they're, they're, they're planting now. I better go plant. Well, and you know, you've brought this up in other podcasts, but like, I'll just use myself as an example. I mean, earlier you mentioned some of the best management practices we've done on the farm. And, you know, one of them is that we did these stream buffers, right. To protect the bay and help reduce runoff. Yeah. Um, but we, I'll call it, you know, we had some advice that was good. Like it was good that we did this, but, you know, we kind of instantiated our CRP with more of a cool season mix. Mm-hmm. And, you know, after listening to you guys podcast forever, and I know you're much more of a fan of your native grasses and such. And yeah, you know, that's just an example of, you know, you do something, you lock yourself into a CRP contract. And, you know, for me, I wish I would have went a different direction, but at the same time, you know, hopefully that's something I can tell someone else that might be entering a CRP contract that says, hey, you know, you don't have to plant orchard grass and fescue and, and other things. You know, you For can sure. think about the other mixes. Absolutely. So. Now, I have that conversation a lot with some of my friends and brother of, of uh, you know, CRP in theory is great. But when and and let's just be honest here. When the government is encouraging you to plant these other species that aren't that beneficial to the wildlife, it kind of makes you scratch your head and go, "Okay, now what? What are we doing this for?" Um, right. And, and and one of the other things that really kills me is you see really rank around here. You just see a lot of, or not around here. We don't have much CRP, but here in the Midwest, um, you'll see a lot of just rank CRP ground that could somebody could go in and benefit hugely by grazing it during a certain time of the year, pulling them off and it not be damaging. And actually it's more beneficial to the land than not grazing it. But we have these very, we've got these lines we have to stay within of, okay, sometimes if we graze, we're going to overgraze and it's more detrimental. But if we could stay within those bounds and plant more of a diversity, uh, high diverse mix, in a CRP contract and then graze it during a small section of the, of the year, uh, we could benefit so much more, but who am I? Um, I'm not the guy that writes up these contracts. <laughs> so unfortunately I guess they'll stay similar to what they are now. Now we, we have about what two more years left of our contract and then we plan to kind of overhaul those areas. But I mean, good news is, is I would say I mean, it's been about seven or eight years we've had them. Um, there is a lot of native stuff that has come up, you know, whether it be um, I'm trying to think of some of the ones that that Matt and I were talking about. But I mean, we have s- some pea species in there, too. Oh, cool. God, what's the one? There was Partridge one that was pea. like, yeah, but there's one that um, has a lot of protein. Hmm. Something, something rod, something rod. Does that sound right? Golden rod. Yeah, golden rod. Sorry. Yeah, golden rod. Um, yeah. You know, we, we had golden rod. You know, we had a lot of different things that have have crept up through but you know there's still that mat underneath that hopefully over time we'll be able to address yeah i'd be interested to see what other programs are available um the next go around of course i know i don't know it'd be it'd be really interesting to see do you guys have kind of a i'm not even sure you guys would qualify in the pollinate or in the monarch um yep no you do okay yeah no we actually did a section of the the I'll call it the section of our CRP along the stream buffers we planted and you know kind of pollinator mixes and such. Okay. So, very yeah, a, cool. I mean, definitely very active uh, FSA, NRCS, and Soil Conservation Office, and they have been hugely helpful 
and kind of advising us, you know, tying back in what we were saying, you know, they helped us through, you know, the CRP buffers, they helped us put in shallow water uh, kind of wetland areas that we can drain down and plant like millet in and such for, you know, we have a pretty strong geese and duck migration here. Well, mostly geese, but, you know, we do have some, like wood ducks and some other ducks too along yeah. here in our, in our little flyway. And then, you know, we did some tree plantings and kind of what I guess what you guys would call on the podcast more of an old field management. And so, you know, they've been hugely helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's super cool. Um, what has been probably, I know the day you probably signed the contract, that was the most exciting day for you <laughs> on, on buying the farm and probably building the house and moving in. But as far as the land goes, is there one thing that you've done that you're like, man, I really, really enjoy that. That's my most favorite thing to do. The wetland area probably is pretty high up there because okay. my uncle, my dad, and myself essentially did it ourselves. My uncle is an excavator, so he had some equipment. But, you know, I learned how to drive a dump truck, an excavator, and a dozer <laughs> yeah. in the course of a summer. And we had a pretty dry summer, and essentially we were able to get it all done in a couple months. And, you know, the amount of times I've been able to take, you know, kids out to go hunting on youth hunts or – just takes my friends and family to go hunting and, you know, for geese and other things. But, you know, also like, you know, come spring, I have wood duck boxes up and I get to see, you know, wood ducks or we actually get a lot of um, mergansers too that, um, that nests in the boxes. And, oh, cool. You know, so it's, those are Matt's favorite just... ducks to eat, by the way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. They're a specialty. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so being, I think, you guys made a post online, I don't know, a month or so ago, or and it, this idea of reaping what you sow, right? This idea of like you put in the effort, and then you know now it's been like I said, six, seven years since we built the ponds, and it's like we have this established yeah. habitat and long-term you know, habitat restoration, right? Yeah, and I think you know because since this is the for love of the land podcast, I would say that it can be broadened right beyond just like um a hunting benefit right it's this idea of i can watch the the wildlife where i know that you know i put some time in and i my you know the habitat is better and so the herd is better and so even if you're not a hunter just a a nature lover um it, it pays huge benefits and not to mention like just another quick story is you know, on our soybeans, not this year, because we actually did have to fertilize this year, but the prior two years, right, Maryland requires you to have nutrient management plans. And, you know, with the winter wheat every year since I can ever remember now, essentially, you know, we're only applying fertilizer every so often. So for two years, we weren't applying fertilizer and we had great yields. Yeah. And so this idea that the soil health's improving and that, you know, you're not putting as many nutrients on the ground so you're not seeing as much runoff and you know i mentioned earlier in the podcast that my dad you know was a waterman and this idea that farmers are really stepping up to the plate and reducing the nutrients going to the bay i think that's another huge thing that i'm super proud of yeah that definitely be one i'd be proud of because you guys are when you say waterman what what all are you guys doing in the bay we so Growing up, my dad was full-time farmer and waterman, and mostly at that time, fish and crabs, with crabs probably being, you know, the iconic Maryland blue crab kind of being the primary thing. Gotcha. Um, What kind of fish? Dad went off and got a job at uh, 
at local government. I was proud when he, you know, went and sat himself in front of a computer. That was probably like 10 years ago. <laughs> and yeah. he um, has been kind of the, he's the nutrient management advisor for the county. So he writes the soil plans for everybody and oh. to help with the runoff. Oh, very so, cool. Anyway, so he's, he hasn't had as much time to be a waterman. Now he's getting close to retirement and about, was it four or five years ago, we invested in a essentially an oyster co-op where each year we go out and plant oysters and then those oysters grow for three years and we get to harvest them. So that's kind of our primary connection to the river right now. But I think here in a year or so when dad retires, he's going to go back crabbing pretty much full time. Gotcha. So too. oysters are pretty, whenever you're, when you look at water quality, yeah, are, they're definitely a species that require or are one of the, if you were to eat an oyster in very poor water quality, that could be somewhat harmful for you because they're basically a filter, correct? Um, I mean, they naturally filter, but it's, I mean, you, the you, studies that I've seen are, it's, is we're, I'm not too worried about eat, eating oysters. Okay, generally. well, you're talking to uh, an Ozark Mountain Boy, so yeah. oysters are out of my comfort zone, <laughs> and uh, understanding their filter, I'm kind of always like, ah, ah well, I'll eat a steak. It depends on what they're filtering, right? So yep. if you're if say you had oysters just outside of like a how do I call it like a an area where you were worried about like harmful chemicals or yeah. you know, strong minerals like lead or something like that, that may be more of an issue. But yep. things like nitrogen and you know, the things that cause like you were mentioned earlier, algae blooms or or, you know, anything that are kind of having detrimental impacts to the water, they do a great job of filtering that. And, you know, those things aren't going to be harmful oh, to humans. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. So you guys basically set forth and were improving the land, which improved the water and erosion runoff to where now you're and continuing to eat things that are directly affected by your work on the land. You got it. Mm, that's got to be rewarding. <laughs> now there's still more work to be done. There always is. And Mother Nature is making it harder these days, right? So yep. um, this year in particular, I think we had almost 80 inches of rain here in Maryland. Wow. Which for us was, you know, probably the wettest year on record, I think, going back to like 1880 or something like that. I think I have heard on the news. Um, and, you know, because of that, you know, despite even farmers that are doing – the best they can, you still are going to have a lot of freshwater runoff, and that's going to have impacts to things like oysters, right, which require a certain amount of salinity. Yep. So, you know, I think we can only go up from here and continue to do the best that we can, but, mm -hmm. you know, we certainly have to be mindful of it. Yep, absolutely. It's definitely something that, I mean, we preach this so much with consulting and, and our podcasts of that it, it, everything is connected. And so if you do something drastically out of whack with the with the whole system, you're going to you're going to cause a huge ripple effect. Um, and it sounds like you guys are starting to get intertwined and and really and really work to improve that. A um, couple quick questions for guys. And this is something I'm, I really I don't know. I'm I'm really interested in it because I can see the I've seen the disconnect over time. Um, but your wife, was she from the country city and how did she enjoy <laughs> that transition to the farm? So she's from a town called Annapolis. It's the capital of oh, Maryland. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so she has strong connection to the water. So that's, you know, one good thing is that we definitely have that strong connection together. Um, she, I don't think she thought when she grew up, she was going to live on a farm per se, mm-hmm. but um, she certainly embraced it. And I think this actually ties into some of the podcasts you guys have had about, you know, introducing new hunters and things like that. Right. So yep. getting her out to literally just like take a walk in our stream or, um, you know, go shed hunting or um, fly kite in the big field on behind the house. Right. Yeah. Anything to enjoy the outdoors. That's right. Anything to enjoy the outdoors. I mean, we have a, I tell you, you know, plug for anybody that sells um, golf carts near you. We bought a, like a, a golf cart that has like a little lift on it, you know, so it's it's not a bad boy buggy, but it's just like very similar refurbished golf cart. You know, that has been huge for us to enjoy the land. Right. So we get, we literally, she'll get in the golf cart. The kids ride the bikes down to the barns. Um, we get down the bottom of the hill. The kids are a little bit tired. She throws the bikes on the back. The kids jump in, come back to the house. So those sorts of things, um, I guess, are have been enablers to her to really embrace the lifestyle. And, and you know, now, you know, she likes deer meat better than she does beef, for example. So, you wow. know, it's the transition has been good. Yeah, definitely. And how many kids? Two girls. Two one girls. Is, yeah, one's six and one is three. You're outnumbered, man. <laughs> I tell you, that's you asked me earlier about one of the things that was been the, one of the coolest moments here on the farm. That was definitely one of them. And I'm sure there's tons of dads out there that feel the same way. But, you know, I took my oldest. You know, I think it was opening day of shotgun, okay, just to set the stage. Of, you know, I had had some encounters with some bucks early on, had an idea where I was going to go in the afternoon, had seen some deer in the morning. You know, I had this plan where I was going to go after a big buck, you know. And my daughter comes up to me, and I think it was like 1 p.m. or something, and I'm getting ready to head back out for an early sit, and she says, hey, I want to go hunting with you today. So the whole big buck thing just went out the window. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. So I, you know, we got the face paint on and I had a tent, you know, down below the house and went and sat in that and actually ended up having like a yearling come 15 yards from the tent, you know, that sort of thing. And yeah, you know, that's what it's all about, right? Is, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, you're trying to get people outdoors. You're trying to be a good steward of the land. You're trying to protect the ecosystems that we all enjoy, um, and pass that heritage, if you will, down to our children. That's and right. That's, that's what it's all about. You're trying to just start a fire in them that's as as strong as the one in you. Yeah. So, question for you. All right. Uh oh. I know it just the way you just said that made me think. So, what do you think drives people like you and me to love the land so much? I mean, what do we think really is at the core of it? The uh, the core of what it is for me is the connection with God. Um, yeah. To me. Uh, and that's kind of the basis of, you know, for love of the land is the ty- is the name of our, of our slogan. But the yep. second part of that is for love of the land, glory to God. Um, and so for me, it's always been kind of a, it's evolved. Obviously you go through the teenage years where you're just like, you're just like, I'm going to go enjoy the farm. I'm hunting. And, yeah. And, that's right. But, you build a fort in the woods and that's you do right. all that kind of stuff. It's, it's the fun side. But as you get a little older for me, it's been kind of the, the recharging and the the overall core of it is understanding that God created this for us 
to see him and seek him through it. And um, as a steward of it, I am here to help create it back to its natural state to where I can show it to others to see him um, more clearly. And mm-hmm. I think that's that to me, that's that's what it's always been or that's what it's about now. And that's what it's probably going to be for the rest of my life. <laughs> no, I, I can resonate with that. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's funny how you how it starts to build inside of you. And I think hunting clearly is a good way to build inside. But I think it could be mountain biking and looking at a waterfall. It could be anything. But like for me, I can remember literally being 10 years old and walking down a pathway and my mom actually was the one who taught me how to hunt. She would take me squirrel hunting and we'd walk down this path and we, it didn't even matter if we shot anything. It was, you know, one, we're not making noise We're she's teaching me how to be quiet and how to just, you know, walk slow and just take it all in. Right. And so yep. you start to notice, Oh, look at that woodpecker. And then you say, Oh, what's this? This is an acorn on the ground. What's an acorn. Oh, you know, what type of leaf is this? You know, it just, and it snowballs from there. And, you know, anyway, I guess bottom line is that I think what you guys are doing on the podcast, you know, trying to engage your friends, your family, anybody that is willing to participate is, you know, what we have to do to kind of spread the love, if you will. Mm -hmm, For sure. I think what better way to teach a, a young kid, me, I've got a, just over a month old daughter now and so I'm already like thinking about how to how to get her how to help her understand this this land but it's like what better way to teach somebody about life whenever you you show them the acorn you show them the uh the the seed that's just that's just germinated and and what it's going to grow into and and the process of planting a seed and what it's going to turn into and planting that seed in a in an area where you know it's going to grow or you plant it in an area where you know it's going to fail. Same thing could be said about life. You plant seeds certain places. You always want to plant seeds in, in something that's going to flourish. And so um, that's really, the, to me, honestly, we can talk about habitat and all that <laughs> stuff all, all the time, but that's kind of a thing that really is the root of it for, for me. And, and I'll probably speak for Matt on that one as well. So, yeah, yeah, well, man. There's certain amount of, um, I'm sure you felt this way since you just had a, a young child. But when you look down at your child the first time, you're just amazed, and you know that there's, you know, there has to be a God, if you will, because how could this be without a God? And I feel like sometimes mm-hmm. there's a lot of people who feel the same way about land. You know, how could we have something so beautiful, so intricate, um, and clearly, like you said, you know. It sort of is our job to take care of it. So yeah, that, absolutely. I mean, when you look at the uh, look at a dove who is working and and adjusting its feathers and going to the little spot on its body where it can get more oil to make sure its feathers are waterproof, to a woodpecker who's got a tongue that's twice the length of uh, of its beak that wraps around its brain to protect it from from basically the the head trauma that it would suffer if it didn't have that tongue and then it gives it the ability to reach far back into those cavities to pull out insects and um i mean all the way up to the reason a white-tailed deer has its antlers too there's so many fine details that are often overlooked um that make you once you start putting them under a magnifying glass you like there's no way this happened by accident yeah 
Yeah, 100%, man. Anything else on, on your farm? Like, to me, I, I love hearing, that's why we launched this podcast. I love hearing people tell the stories of uh, the first time they bought a farm or the farm that's always been in their family. Um, what age are your daughters again? Six and three. So when you took your daughter, was that the first hunt when she came down and said, I want to go hunting with you? I think it was like the second or third, but okay. the point was is that I wasn't like, hey, let's go hunting. It was like she wanted to hunt. She wanted was, to go, yep, you know, for sure. She, she saw me putting on my camouflage, and she's like, hey, you know, I can go. And So, yeah, that's yeah, that was a cool moment. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's just – land is like a – is like a painting, right? And we mm -hmm. get to sit back and, and, you know, put the first layer on and then maybe put a second layer on. And, you know, my mom, she told me, she said, because sometimes, you know, I'm not impatient, but, you know, I, I tend to want to, you know, accomplish things, right? So oh, yeah. she, um, I think it was about five years ago. And, you know, we had, we were struggling with like permits or something to get the house on the farm, right? Because that's just life. Yeah. And, yeah. um, you know, there's a certain amount of persistence that it just takes to kind of stick with something. And when you get all that payback, it's just, I don't know how else to say it, except that, you know, persistence pays off. That's right. Exactly. When you're doing, and that's why I like planting native grasses and planting trees. By the way, I've got a question for you. What kind of trees were you guys planting? You said you were planting trees oh, on your place. a mixture. So we did some, um, you know, some oaks, some some pines and then we also had like things that are here in maryland i don't know if they're how far else they go but like things like red buds oh yeah we got them words, you know those sorts of things now yep. the pines took the best but you know we have some oaks that that took decent and you know there's some red buds that survived too yeah um, to me an but, oak is one of those things when talking long term i mean white yeah. oak can live for hundreds of years and you plant it and you're like man that's that five years five years go by and you're like I don't know if that oak's gonna make it <laughs> right and twenty years go by and now we're talking outside of my range of of age but you're like it just keeps going and going and going even though it took a long time to get there it just fought through all of it um, yep. and that's the fun part about land management so anyway man so, hey yeah one last thing because I a minute ago I was going to tell you that story from my mom and I kind of lost my train of thought yeah let's hear it what she, what she said to me was you know, you can't get all the projects done on day one. Yeah. And, you know, if, if you did, then there wouldn't be much to do in it, right? So there's a certain amount of, I guess that would be advice that I would try to give someone that, you know, it's, we're about essentially um, almost 12 years into this venture and we still have a ton more to do. You know yep. what I mean? So you, know, you kind of have to approach it that way that, you know, Try to set a plan, talk to as many people as you can, learn lessons, and, and just get after it. That's right. Absolutely. Um, I th and that's a, frust that's a frustrating thing for me because, <laughs> you know, we, we lay out plans across the country, and it's like, okay. And, and we hear of all the, the people are, are reporting back to us, hey, I just planted this, I just did this, I just did this. And it's like, man, that's really cool. And I'm thinking about all the stuff I have laid out for my farm. And I'm like, you haven't got there yet, been on the road. 
And it's like, man, yeah. I just want to snap my fingers and and make it happen. But the journey of of doing exactly. that makes it the that's, the most rewarding that's exactly part. Exactly the right word, journey. Yep. Yeah. So, man, I appreciate it so much for coming on and telling your story. And it was a lot of fun hearing about it and stepping, bringing me out of my my range of uh, of knowledge of the land as far as your location. Um, thirty minutes, thirty five minutes from DC, and you're right in the middle of of crops. And that, to me, that's the thing where I'm like, man, that. That's crazy. I just picture DC being huge and, and going on forever. It seems like so. Yeah, yeah. But it's important to remember though that thirty-five miles doesn't mean thirty-five minutes because oh. it's like an hour and a half because of traffic. <laughs> there you go. That's the key. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. the explanation for sure. Wow. So all right, awesome well, hey, man. Yeah, hey, thanks it's for coming been an honor on. To be on here. I'm glad to to talk with you, and uh, you know, hopefully people enjoy it. Yeah, I'm sure they will. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. All righty, I've got Cody on the line. Cody, how you doing today? Hey, I'm great. Good deal. Cody, why don't you tell us who you are and uh, who you're with? Yeah, so my name is Cody Smith. I'm with Midwest Land Group. And so I kind of operate central part of Missouri. I can run anywhere in the state, but I concentrate um, probably for the majority between Columbia, south through Rolla, and it's like hmm. Texas County, I would say, would be my core. Yeah. Um, and over towards the west, maybe a little bit. I work the lake area quite a bit as well. So okay. So if you if you're to draw crosshairs on the state of Missouri, boom, you're you're right there in it, pretty much. Dead center. Yep. Dead center. Cool. Cool. Um, has that always been home to you? So I grew up in the Rolla area, so Rolla has always been a home. Um, background for me is I I went to Mizzou, so yep. I came up to Columbia from Rolla. And at I, my actual degrees are in natural resources. So I've got two bachelors, one in forestry, one in uh, wildlife management. Nice. And I worked for the Department of Conservation as a forester for quite a while. Bounced around with that. Um, was down in Springfield, came up through Lebanon, ended up in North Missouri. Mm-hmm. Um, and then before I got into the real estate side of things, I did some consulting work. I have my own consulting business still, but it's kind of a side gig take care of previous customers kind of situation now. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny how everything really, um, whether, you know, we typically are into the, the wildlife and habitat side of things, but, um, you know, your previous business and previous education, and everything has led right into doing real estate and, and they're, I'm not gonna say they're seamless, but they work really, really well together to be able to offer, um, information from an agent standpoint to potential buyers and sellers, great information you bet so to be honest when i transitioned into the midwest land group world and was going real estate i was pretty hesitant because i i didn't want to leave my education and all that time i had built you know training and Mm -hmm. learning things in that realm and i kind of felt like i was going to leave some of that behind but now that i'm on the other side i see i actually talk probably wildlife hunting things like that more on a daily basis than I did before. Cause I have more contact with people than I used to as well. Sure. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's like you say, pretty seamless. It's funny how that works. It, it really is. And how things in the past will lead right, right into a, a future. So, um, what do you have listing wise to talk about today? Yeah. So I've got a couple pretty good ones. Um, especially yeah. since we're leaning towards the habitat side of, co- of the conversation. Sure. Um, one that I like, uh, that, 
you've actually been on, so we'll kind of talk about it, is what we call our Right 205. It's just oh, yeah. northeast of Hartville, uh-huh. and that's one of my favorites. Um, and not only is it a good price, but it's great from a habitat standpoint. So got a little bit of diversity and has a lot of potential for somebody who wants to do management in the future. So that's the one I kind of want to focus on today. Yeah, absolutely. No, that, that's a that's a fun piece. I did have the uh, opportunity to to bring a potential buyer to it, um, and, and I enjoyed walking around it, know that area really well. Um, and and just like you said, you know, it has had some timber work in the past that's that's resulted in improved habitat in comparison to the rest of the neighborhood. Um, so it definitely kind of stands out. Um, so what are some of the other features of that property? So what I like about it is, like I said, it has some diversity. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're looking at the aerial photo, it looks the, like the majority is wooded. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely the case. But it does have an open field to the south. It has some some topography to it that gives you, as you know, you know, that north side of the slope is going to be a whole lot different than the south side, mm-hmm. um, east to west and so forth. And so... This one has a central ridge that runs down it, and so you have quite a bit of difference on both sides of that main ridge, plus these other, you know, little small valleys in between um, that give it that character mm-hmm. that I really enjoy. And, and yeah, that that's this property pretty much is um, south central Missouri to a T. A little bit mm-hmm. of open, some timber. And, you know, a good mixture of those hills and valleys and pinch points bottlenecks in amongst this, this 205 acres. Um, I yeah. would, of course, whenever I go on a, on a property, I'm sure you're the exact same, you know, mind and, and we all just get to turn of, oh, what you could do and, and just kind of put <laughs> this puzzle piece together. You're like, man, this, this joker could hunt pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one that. I, I have a lot of fun on a personal level because of exactly what you said. My wheels, the day day one started turning and I go, if I bought this, what would I do? Mm-hmm. And to be honest, when I'm with buyers, I have to reel that thought process back in a little bit because I don't yeah. want to overwhelm them. You know, oh, oh, yeah. I'm sure you've oh, yeah. done the same thing. Oh, no doubt. Um, yeah. But this one has so many different things that you could do to just make it that much better. Um, I think I sent you a couple of pictures of the deer that are on it currently mm-hmm. and it's already got a good start, you know? Hey, uh, you know, it really does. It really does. And that's the thing, you know, when, when you're typically buying property, it's very tough to know what's currently on. Like, you know, just evaluate and inventory of the age structure is always tough. But, um, you know, you had a trail camera out there, I believe for, what was it? It was pretty much November, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it documented quite a few good looking deer. Yeah, so it was um, centrally located on that main ridge on the trail system that's in place, and uh, just all kinds of deer, honestly. And I don't, I sent you a very small group, but um, all different age classes um, mm-hmm. up and down the board. And um, yeah, just pretty, pretty nice from that standpoint to see what's passing through. And then also kind of makes you realize how that um that sale that you mentioned had had happened they actually did a pretty light harvest and so what i liked about that is we've got a good mix of mature trees Mm -hmm. you know mass Mm -hmm. production going on still and then also that ground growth a lot of people um who are not so knowledgeable about the habitat side of things are real hesitant about properties that have had a harvest or had any trees cut sure and um 
and so you know it's hard to get that into their head until they've seen it and experienced some things towards that end um themselves that that's fantastic for wildlife yeah man as soon as that sunlight is able to to get down on the forest floor and do something for the wildlife then you get that result that flush of of uh young forest coming back and that typically offers awesome awesome habitat and uh-huh. uh not that many people do it around here most I, I feel like it's kind of on either one side of the spectrum or not um, yeah. you know, it's either full blown, let's just take everything we can off this land or it's don't touch it. <laughs> and, right. and this, this mix, uh, of in between, um, and you'll be able to see that, you know, I think through the, through the pictures pretty well, but it, it produces some cover on the ground and forage. You bet. And so I think what turns a lot of people off to it, um, and partially why you see those wide ranging clusters, you know, at either end of the spectrum is, it makes it really tough to walk through, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a lot of people really want to, to be able to walk from one end to the other, where whatever direction they want to go. And they don't realize that when that's the case, that's not always great for wildlife. Um, Correct. Especially if you're, you know, we talk, and I'm sure you do that way, but we talk a lot about deer hunting because that's one of the biggest facets of it. But if sure. you're talking small game, especially, um, you know, quail, Mm-hmm. they they gotta have that and so um for, for predator avoidance and yep. so there's you know all that small games benefiting turkeys are, are really loving some of that you get that flush of you know early on especially right after that sale you mentioned the flush of growth from the reforestation standpoint and then you get the browse but you you know you also get the grasses and forbs pop up right off the bat mm-hmm. and man food source you know right there for um, not only from a seed standpoint for some of those birds, but you talk about uh, a source for insects to come, pollinators. You know, that's a big topic right now. Oh, yeah. And so you get pollinator habitat started up in there, and now you've got bugs for those turkey poults to pick. You know, so it's not so much that you're producing the seed, but you're producing habitat for that insect that is the food source. That's right. That's right. It all comes full circle. Um, so speaking of, you know, consumers of who do you think is like the ideal candidate for for purchasing a property like this yeah so it's i kind of break every time i look at a property i break it down into the, there's two groups that i would say every property fits maybe one better than the other but the two groups in this one that i see are someone who wants to have a build site um mm-hmm. There's that great location. You drive, you could put a driveway in on that south side, come in past that little pond every day. You've got that little open field. Great build site. Power's not far away. Yeah. yeah. And then you have the remainder to hunt or use for recreation. Then the other. That, yeah, that's group, really not disturbing at all. Exactly. Very minimal. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, that was, that to me is a really optimal scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, you could build in the central part as well, but like you say, you'd end up adding some disturbance if you're using it for hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the other aspect of it is in the buyer that, you know, maybe the main buyer in my mind is is that, that hunter who wants affordable property that we've got it priced a little under 1,100 an acre and, uh, and that has good deer, you mm-hmm. know, that guy that wants that property, that's that's a, a good fit for that person, you know. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. And like I said, it comes in at a at a pretty sweet little uh, price per acre. There's not that many properties that will 
uh, you know, in the shape that this is in, I've certainly seen in the area that um, come in at that price point. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to beat that price, especially when you get out again, if you have a little habitat knowledge and know how to look at it from that standpoint, it, then it changes your viewpoint even more so to, to think, Oh man, that price. And it's got this really strong benefit mm-hmm. you know, habitat wise. No doubt. So. No question. Um, so how can someone reach you, um, Cody, what's, uh, name, number, email, all that stuff, if, if they're interested in this or, or just kind of want to know more about uh, Central Missouri? You bet. So all of our listings are going to be on Midwest Land Group's website. So that's just MidwestLandGroup.com. There's no spaces, hyphens. It's all right together. And so you can look, do a search through and find either my information off the agent side of things, or you can find the listing itself, which has my phone number on it as well. Um, but you can also call me directly on uh, my office number is 573 area code 818-3051. We've got a couple of different ones, but that'll be the one on that listing that you'll find. Um, that, that's usually the best way is to, to give me a shout. You can also email me at Cody Smith at MidwestLandGroup.com. Perfect. Perfect. Well, we certainly appreciate uh, your time and sharing this property with us and uh said if you're interested i do know it's a pretty good looking property so uh best of luck to you and hopefully someone will uh give you a shout very good thanks you bet all right we got another agent lined up right here um kind of in the family here um but we've got mr sean terrell out of kansas city area sean you there Absolutely, guys. Thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate you coming here. So give us a kind of a little bit of background, your ties with your brokerage and what you do. Well, as uh, as you already know, I'm the president of auction services for United Country Real Estate. I run the auction division uh, here at the corporate headquarters in Kansas City. I also own a real estate franchise with United Country, and uh, that's based out of Kansas City. We call that United Country Kansas City Auction and Realty. There you go. Awesome. So, so you do things a little bit differently than what we typically highlight on this show. Everybody else has a listing, and it's kind of like, call me if you want to get a tour, but yours is a an auction. So kind of tell us a little bit about how you handle a, uh, a property, or once you get a listing, how you handle it differently than your normal real estate type sell. Absolutely, guys, and I appreciate the opportunity to uh, to visit with you about auctions a little bit. I've been a professional auctioneer uh, in real estate and in personal assets for over 30 years, and this is uh, yet another example of a property that there's a market uh, that's kind of chomping at the bit to buy this property. It's a 471-acre ranch located in Barber County, Kansas that one of my agents in the office is actually secured. We're taking this to auction because it's settling in a state, um, Eleanor Bible's estate, which is, is being probated in Barber County, Kansas. We've got a mixture of, of family area landowners and neighbors and, and some larger ranch owners from outside of the area that have bought property over the years that would like to own this property. They've made offers. They've been trying to buy the property and, it has not been on the market for many, many years. So we're excited about this auction opportunity. Hmm. 
I, I, I love that you said Barber County, Kansas. That's southwest of Wichita. What is the 400 and some, 471, I believe is what you said. What's the makeup of the property? We're looking at cattle country, crop country. 471 acres is correct. And let me, uh, let me start out by saying this. Barber County, Kansas is actually located in one of the most desirable hunting units in the state of Kansas. It's in hunting unit 16. If you're on the hunting and recreational marketplace throughout the southern or southeastern United States, you're extremely familiar or should be familiar with hunting unit 16. It's well noted for trophy deer. There's a lot of trophy white-tailed deer uh, that come out of that county and, and that hunting unit. There's also some muleys. We'll get mule deer. It's far enough west that sporadically you'll see mule deer. And it'll also provide nice cover for pheasants and quail and some nice upland uh, birds, upland game hunting. This property, the makeup of it is 471 acres that consist of the south half of a section and a southwest quarter, which are adjoined. So the property will run for approximately one and a half miles east to west. Mm -hmm. It sets off the blacktop. Uh, it's, it, the blacktop splits the eastern portion of the ranch. Uh, as you turn into the property, it will run for over a mile straight to the west and just kind of rolling. Uh, we call them the red hills out there. Nice, uh, nice native grass pasture. Mm. Got, tur got Turkey Creek uh, is the live water stream that runs north to south across the property. There's several ponds on it. And then the bottoms have got a nice mixture of hardwoods and cedars. And they've got timberline bottoms in it. This ranch is guaranteed with Minimal elevation changes, just enough to kind of let you see long distances. Uh, not a lot of hiding spots out there. When you come out of those canyons, you can see for a long distance. It's just going to be a hunter's dream. Mm. A lot of rolling prairie, it sounds like. You got me hooked already, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love Bring the rolling prairie. Bring your yeah. checkbooks, boys. That's it. That's exactly <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, Basically, a lot of opportunities here. When I hear Rolling Prairie, I'm, the the cattle farmer roots come out and go, ooh, you can get a lot of great summer gains on, on some native grass. But then I think of the habitat for the wildlife, and I'm like, man, you could graze during the summer, hunt it during the fall and winter, all kinds of hunting, upland birds and also uh, the white-tailed deer. And I'm sure there's a few turkeys tucked around in there somewhere. Um, what is it as far as um, when you say the live water, is there any waterfowl opportunities this far west? You know, waterfowl, it's getting a little ways west for waterfowl. There's always some uh, opportunities when you have pit ponds or surface ponds. Uh -huh. You will get, uh, you'll have opportunities at some ducks, some, tur uh, excuse me, geese that yeah. come in through the migration. But normally the main flyaway is going to be considerably amount of distance on east of there. So. Okay. The concentration of duck hunters, this is getting a little bit west for them. Gotcha. What it, what it does offer over some of the surrounding properties, if you're familiar with the Red Hills area of Kansas, it's very easy and very prevalent to run into um, deep canyons. Mm -hmm. And some of those canyons make it really hard to get um, access to all ends of the property. You have to go out and around on county roads or across neighbors to across some of those deeper red canyons those ravines that were cut out there over you know thousands of years so gotcha this part of the country having uh, kind of moderate canyons it's got uh, it's got draws depressions in it they're timber lined they have ponds in them 
but yet you can still go down through those and back up the other side and it, it's an easily accessible property perfect yeah i like the sounds of that so who do you think the buyer is cattle farmer recreational guy or a combination well i i think it's a combination the cattle farmer so we, we all know what normally if you're in the cattle business what you can afford to buy property at for your inputs and run cattle and make a property cash flow that price point is probably not going to be able to buy the property with the amount of demand that we have. Mm -hmm. So if a livestock or cattle operator buys that, it will be based on their current operations and the amount of capital that they have. Um, they'll overpay for this property to do that. Gotcha. Hunting and, hunting and recreational is kind of driving the market, especially since it's in hunting unit 16 of Kansas. We see a lot of play from uh, within the three states out here of Missouri, Kansas, Oklahoma that like to come in and hunt this area. And then we've had a significant draw for the past 20 years out of the southeast, primarily in Mississippi, uh, Alabama, Georgia. We get a lot of uh, hunters that come into these ranches and hunt from there. They're always looking for property to buy. There you Absolutely. go. Absolutely. No, that, that sounds like a, a definitely a recreational um, dream out there a lot of opportunity for people and it's it's in a very well-known unit um, so when when's the auction the auction is uh, so this one's going to be interesting guys uh, instead of a live auction on site we're doing this one on the internet oh, it will cool. be an online only auction so it's online bidding only the bids are going to open on march the 2nd and they will uh or, or excuse me i'm sorry i i got that wrong that's that's incorrect the bids are actually going to uh, open on February 20th, and they are going to close on March 20th. Okay. So a month span to be able to put in. 30-day span. March the 2nd and March the 9th are the preview dates that we'll have representatives on site, and mm -hmm. we'll offer tours of the ranch at that point if they'd like to go across it. Absolutely. Awesome. You know, there's, there's a lot of um, different opinions about auctions and uh, versus, you know, traditional real estate. Um, you've been in auctions, been successful at auctions uh, for, for 30 years. Give us a, just a quick, you know, hey, these are the pros uh, of doing auctions. And every region's different, of course, but um, for, for a property like this, what's the advantage of selling through an auction versus a traditional real estate setup? The number one thing that you have to have that's that's it's it's significant to the equation is participation. You have to have demand for the mm -hmm. property. When you have properties that have not been presented for many many years in rural markets, uh, land. Typically, we're talking about land, farmland, cropland, uh, grass pasture or grazing land, hunting and recreational land. If those properties have not been afforded an opportunity to be purchased by the public for many years, that'll build demand over sure. time. Yeah, so that helps, and and that is um, that is a barrier to having an auction if you don't have that demand. Without participation, you're dead in the water in the auction business. It's so you 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 got to have somebody that more than one person that's ready, willing, and able to buy that property. Yeah, Where absolutely. you see a, a strong difference in traditional listing and auction listing could be maybe in the residential sector. The, the normal process for a house is to list it for sale, uh, receive offers, and those offers may have contingencies in them where they're working on getting a loan from a bank, getting financing. Uh, they want home inspections. 
if there's any uh, any kind of un unsatisfactory conditions with the property, they want to negotiate those. So the contingencies in the contract when you're selling something at auction typically all get waived. It's a non-contingent sale. It's a cash mm -hmm. transaction, which again, it's easier to buy vacant land to buy property than it is to buy a you know a three hundred or five hundred thousand dollar home and not know what's behind the walls or in the foundation or the wiring. Sure. Um, it's just not quite as transparent. The consumer's pretty much trained to that. They're conditioned that in rural America, they're very accustomed to having auctions in non-rural areas, in urban markets across this country. Auctions are not quite as prevalent. Gotcha. You know, when I was a kid, that was kind of one thing. Saturdays, Saturday mornings, a lot of times meant going to auctions with dad to see farms being sold. Um, it's interesting to hear that this one's being sold online. Uh, basically, the bidding happens online. Kind of tell me, is this a trend that's starting to happen to where um, you're seeing more and more online sales from auctions? It's absolutely a trend that's happening in the auction business. I've been a live outcry uh, professional bid calling auctioneer for almost 30 years. And, uh, yeah, and I'm not completely excited about the fact that we're conducting auctions on the internet online yeah. but yet it's it's not really about what we like it's it's about what the consumer needs and what the demand is and how we can meet those those challenges out there the online bidding platform allows people to bid 24 hours a day seven days a week on properties that they've conducted their due diligence they've become ready willing and able to purchase the property and now they're now they're at a point where they're engaging in the process. The other thing it does is it kind of preys upon the fact that we're impulse buyers for the most part as consumers. If right. we have the capital to buy something and it just it strikes our fancy right now when we're looking at the photos and we're excited about it, we can place a bid and participate in that auction today without mm -hmm. waiting until March 20th to have to drive to Medicine Lodge, Kansas and you know, to stand in a room and, and get a bid number and participate against everybody else. So that expediency and that opportunity to bid and to create that demand out there from our competitive nature and our impulse, uh, kind of impulse buying nature, it is accelerating the prices on a lot of this property. We're making it overly available to the public. There wow. you go. Yeah, so Very how, well where would a person be able to find this this auction if they're interested? You can go to, uh, and we don't have it on our website until uh, uh, possibly within this week. Uh, it, it would be at auctionkansascity.com. We'll have some information up on the website. And again, the bidding platform will not open until February 20th is when they yep. could actually start placing a bid. But auctionkansascity.com is the website that will get them there. Awesome. Perfect. Well, Perfect. we appreciate you coming on and highlighting this. Uh, sounds like an awesome, awesome farm in southwest, southern Kansas, I guess. is. I don't know. What, what would you call that? Southwest Kansas? Yeah, southwest, southwest Kansas. Kansas. Now, how far is this from where you grew up? Um, I grew up south of there in Alva, Oklahoma, a little town south of Alva. And this is about an hour, just a little over an hour north of there. Gotcha. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on and, and sharing some information about this property. Hopefully somebody hears it and is going to be checking out that that bidding going on starting in February. Well, guys, thanks for the opportunity. I'm a huge fan of your show. I listen to it all the time, and I appreciate uh, I appreciate the invite to talk about the property today on here. It's a great thrill for me. Awesome. Thank you so much. Take care.
Okay. See ya.